0: Hello, America. Happy Saturday. So glad you can join us. Hey, we got the whole show today with one of my favorite strategic thinkers in the country's national security thought leaders, Victoria Coates, former deputy national security advisor to President Trump, longtime member of the National Security Council, very important strategic thinker. By the way, important not just on security matters, but also on energy. She worked at the energy department, new energy secretary, Rick Perry, former Texas governor, Rick Perry, former presidential candidate. She's got a big, big portfolio picture on energy, geopolitics, security, terrorism. We're going to talk to her about all the important things. We had that interview with President Trump. I'm going to ask about some of President Trump's strategy ideas, like how to bring Vladimir Putin to his knees for a real peace deal by driving down oil prices and getting rid of his war treasury. We're going to ask all that. And also, why did OPEC thumb its nose at President Biden? I mean, This was a worldwide embarrassment to the President of the United States reducing 2 million barrels a day of production worldwide, OPEC, OPEC Plus, whatever they call it these days. That was an intentional slight of the president, probably to make up for what happened in Saudi Arabia this summer. We're going to ask Victoria about that as well. All right. That's our Saturday show. Let's take a quick commercial break here from our great partners, advertisers, sponsors. When we come back, Victoria Coates joining us for the whole show. Thanks to our good friends at BrickHouse Nutrition, Field of Greens is going to give you a 15% off discount plus free rush shipping. All you got to do is go to fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS for your discount. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. Fieldofgreens.com, promo code JUSTNEWS. Go check it out. All right, folks, welcome back for the commercial break. As you all know, the world has been a remarkably Unstable place in, in the last six months, particularly with the Russia-Ukraine war, with China rattling its sabers around Taiwan and in the Pacific. And it gets trickier and trickier each day to make sense of how serious the situation is. Is there anyone out there with a solution? our next guest is that sort of person. She has some of the best security credentials anywhere in the United States. She is a solution thinker too, not just, can I referee what's wrong? She's always putting policies on there. She advised President Trump at the National Security Council and is now a senior research fellow at the Margaret Thatcher Center for Freedom at Heritage Foundation. She is Victoria Coates. Victoria, great to have you back on the show.
1: Well, thank you, John. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: We love having you on. And I think a lot of people are scratching their head the last 24, 48 hours saying, "Okay, Joe Biden said he was going to bring the whole world together. We'd all be singing Kumbaya by the time he was in his first year's presidency. And OPEC just turns around and, I mean, gives him a push in the ribs like we haven't seen cutting oil production at a point right before the election. What are we to make of OPEC Plus? What are they up to here?
1: Yeah, it was, it was a pretty brutal announcement, you know, and they had quoted the million barrels per day and then suddenly it was two million barrels per day that, that they were going to cut. Uh, a couple of things just for the, for the context of your listeners. A lot of OPEC members for various reasons had not been making their quotas. So in a way, this is just a practical recognition that, that the number that they had set was not realistic, but that they wouldn't have had to cut this much to adjust to that. So there's clearly a message here. And the, the key message, which I've been getting from all of our golf partners and allies, is, you know, you all are a producing nation. You should be one of the three biggest energy producers in the world with the Russians and the Saudis. Yet you act like a vulnerable, consuming nation like China or India. Uh, and what they don't understand, because driving prices down is for them bad for business. You know, they like high prices. If we want to drive prices down, why don't we maximize our production, you know, which we have at our disposal? And so they're completely baffled. And they think the United States is not a good partner, uh, you know, in this kind of negotiation or discussion, how you keep energy markets stable. And they're, quite frankly, not willing to carry the administration's water for them.
0: Yeah. What, what a powerful message. And it's right. I mean, we do have all of this. We were soon to become at the end of the Trump administration, a dominant energy producer. We were, we moved from uh, energy dependence to energy independence under President Trump. And we were moving towards, uh, well, we, I would say energy domination. I mean, we were in the top, we would be in the top three or four producers and we'd have all the leverage that comes with that, not to mention cheaper prices in the United States. And all of that's been erased. And the world wants us to acknowledge that that probably wasn't a good idea. At least the Gulf partners in, in other oil producing countries, they seem to want us to feel the pain that that wasn't a good decision. Where does this lead? I mean, the first thing is we're obviously going to have a significant amount of price increase as a result. We're already seeing that in the last couple of days. But where does this play out in the geopolitical stage?
1: and I think that's a, that's a critical point, that there, there is going to be, you know, a, a restriction in supply and an increase in, in price. But this needs to be seen in a, in a broader context, because I, I track this back to, you know, the election with President Biden referring to the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia as a pariah. I was actually in Riyadh when that happened. Everyone was just shocked that an American presidential candidate who had been on the public stage for so long could not understand, you know, the significance of the relationship. And you don't have to be personal friends or agree with everything each other does. But but that was a shocking moment. And then right after they came in, you know, the administration takes the Houthis off the terrorist list. The Houthi start attacking Saudis. The Saudis asked the administration for security help. And the response was to pull out the patriots that we had, had stationed on the peninsula to protect against the Hougies. and you know that was another shocking moment you know that you could abandon a 70 year ally as they are taking incoming fire and not just say no to additional support but pull out the support that you have so i do think there's a direct line to be drawn from that you know, to what what happened yesterday you know when they're getting all the desperate calls from the white house and you know the you know, the sort of chaos of that last-minute effort to head this off is, is truly embarrassing. Uh, but I think they, they feel like they gave the same response that they had gotten in the spring of 21.
0: I think that's it, which is what's good for the goose is good for the gander. The gander didn't like it much yesterday, but I think they found out what it feels like if you're on the short end of the stick. So, you know, Joe Biden got elected on the idea. He's got 40, 50 years of foreign policy experience. He was Obama's right-hand foreign policy man, uh, used to be the chairman of Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Now, a lot of people have been critical of his foreign policy navigation, and I think it was maybe Bob Gates, the former defense secretary, said Biden was on the wrong side of every foreign policy issue in 40 years. But he got elected on the idea that this was a stable statesman that could you know get America working with its allies, and now we've had Afghanistan. We've got this situation with OPEC. We've had difficulty. We can't get he can't get the Iran deal because Iran is asking for way beyond anyone could possibly imagine. Israel's not that fond of them. Great Britain doesn't seem that fond of them. The mirage that Americans were sold versus what they have now is very different.
1: Oh, absolutely, and I mean, I would add into that you know the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, that that the, the Russians invaded their neighbors under George W. Bush under Obama. And now, again, under Biden, but not under President Trump. And, you know, that, that's simply a, a fact. But clearly, you know, everyone from the Taliban to the Supreme Leader to Vladimir Putin, you know, took, had, had had the measure of Joe Biden and found him very, very wanting. And, you know, we, I think, have taken generational hits to our influence and reputation. Uh you know Afghanistan was such a ca- catastrophe. I I think we still don't fully comprehend what that's going to mean for us.
0: No, I think you're right. I think it's it is historic. I think people are still coming to grasp with that. It's uh it's pretty darn remarkable. Um, as you uh, look out now, uh, the the war in Ukraine is uh, uh, is really in a turning point. Ukraine seems to be on the upper hand. It's making significant advances. Now, I know we're helping them a little bit. Uh, is the Russian military this bad, and how did it get this bad?
1: Well, I, I think that the key thing to remember is the last major operation like this, obviously there have been very small operations, but a big, big, Complicated mission like this was was Afghanistan, and that was not a big success for the Russians. Um, so, you know, I think you, one one needs to treat them with enormous caution, and they still have very significant capabilities and resources. But clearly, they're not a hundred feet high, and you know, the Ukrainians have demonstrated that the very thorough training and equipping that we had done during the Trump administration. Uh, you know and the sending of lethal aid and that and, you know those those steps had been effective uh, that they you know they have you know the passion and you know the the self self-preservation on their side. There doesn't seem to be a lot of motivation on part of the Russians, and you can't make that up. Um so, you know, I think all credit to the Ukrainians for what they've done. Great gratitude to the American taxpayers who have, you know, shouldered a huge amount of this burden. You know, and I think, you know, now the burden is on the administration to tell us what the plan is.
0: Yep. That is the thing that seems to be missing, right? Which is, all right, we have some successes basically because the Ukrainian military, you know, bulked up by our resources, are, are are beginning to rout the Russians. But what's the end game? What is the what is the point of victory look like? And what is our long term interest in this situation when you're playing with the danger of another super a nuclear armed superpower? It seems to me in, in recent conversations, I've, I've talked to a couple of world leaders, talked to President Trump this week, former President Trump, and so. There is something I've heard in private that uh, the missing component here is that the West needs to give, they need to recognize Vladimir Putin's in a tough spot and give him an off ramp, not conceding to him, but giving him an off ramp where he can get out of this without having the temptation to do something stupid. Is that a missing component right now? The Biden administration not creating that off ramp moment where maybe there could be a negotiated settlement?
1: Absolutely. And that should have been, you know, in the works six months ago. And I think part of the problem is the Biden administration never thought for a moment we would be anything but in a three day war with the overthrow of Kiev, the installation of a new government and Zelensky, you know, in exile. And that's what they actually tried to make that happen. You know, now we're almost eight months in and, you know, that that's not the case. They've been real flat footed in, you know, taking advantage of what is enormous weakness in one of our great geopolitical competitors. And all I hear out of the president is, we'll do as much as it takes, as long as it takes. Like, okay, well, what is it? (laughs) And, you know, if you don't tell me what it is, then I don't mean you've just said a bunch of words. And you know that's what what troubles me. I think it troubles the Congress deeply. You know when they just show up and they ask for another 12.6 billion dollars and it's not clear where the previous 50 went. I uh, only six billion of that of the the 50 from the spring was for lethal military aid. Like okay, then what are we paying for? Uh, and that's where I really think they they need to come up with with a plan and a roadmap. And I'm not asking for the details, but I, boy, do the American people deserve to know, you know what, how long are they going to be feeling the pain of this war uh, and, and to what end
0: it feels like this is an administration that hasn't been able to articulate strategy anywhere, right? Afghanistan was a great example. Oh, we're just getting out. Well, yeah, but get out how? And well, we saw what that worked out like. But even things like the 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 one-year requirement to report to Congress on your foreign policy strategy, they kind of miss that or they half meet it. It doesn't seem like there's a very strategic lens in this administration. I know that falls on the National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan more than anyone else. But you got Blinken, I mean, these are all people that have been in and out of government on the Russia-Ukraine side. You've got Victoria Nuland, who's been in there for a long time and, you know, often at the center of a lot of the Ukraine-Russia crises that we've endured. Not anyone really able to articulate a big picture strategy or even define the American interest on any given foreign policy front. How can that be in a government this size with that many people with former government experience that they don't really have a lens?
1: About it, John, that they keep getting mugged by reality, Uh, and you know they came in with a very rigid set of ideas about how they were going to govern. Some of which I think came out of the very experience you described. The adults are back in charge. America's back. We know how to do this. Leave it to us. But the things they prioritized, you know, climate, democracy in the abstract. I'm a big fan of democracy, but you know, it's a form of government. It's not a force for good or evil in and of itself. It's how you use it. Uh, you know, human rights, we're going to prioritize human rights. Like, no, you prioritize the national security of the United States, and that's the best thing you can do for human rights, trust me. And I do think, you know, it is remarkable that Goldwater-Nichols legislation mandates the production of a national security strategy in your first year. Sometimes it slips a couple of months but not like this. We did it in December of 17. President Trump announced it personally, which was unprecedented. You know, and it redefined how we approached our national security strategy in terms of competition, primarily with China, but also with Russia. And you know, that, that was an important document for all of us in the administration. I think what you're seeing now is an administration adrift because they don't have that direction.
0: All right, folks, we'll be right back. We're going to take a quick commercial break. More with Victoria Coates, former Deputy National Security Advisor, right after this. Hey, folks, if you're a homeowner and you're like me, you want to protect your home, right? But when's the last time you checked on the title to your home? If you never have, listen to this. A new report on homeowners shows we all now have $16 trillion in equity. That's an all-time high in America. That's why you need protection from a scam the FBI calls,
1: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
0: When you talk to foreign leaders like you do, I, I, I occasionally have the blessing to do that. They're like... We have no idea where you guys stand. And by the way, I one of them said to me the other day, if they're objective, like they keep saying it is a human rights, they're doing a really bad job in Afghanistan, Iran, China. It's getting worse on their watch. So it, even on their straight, you know, strategic goals that they claim, things are going backwards in the world stage. It's pretty wild. I had an interview with President Trump on Tuesday, and he said something interesting about Vladimir Putin. And again, this is the classic Donald Trump art of the deal guy Basically saying, listen, the best way to get leverage over Vladimir Putin short term is to drain his war bank accountant. And right now he's benefiting from the tight oil uh, prices. Uh, But if we ramped up uh, production and our allies worked together with us to ramp up production, we could get oil down to $40, $50 a barrel and he'd be flat broke. And then he'd be making a really good deal with us. Your thoughts on the, the way Donald Trump thought about that. And has that been something we've been missing for the last year?
1: Oh, I think we've been missing sorely for almost two years now, and it was—it's very analogous to his approach to Iran, which was, you know, starve this hostile, you know, aggressive, violent regime of every resource you can, and we put on unprecedented sanctions. And then, interestingly, we took their oil exports basically down to zero. When the Obama people put on their sanctions, they had. It, they issued exemptions for certain countries: China, Japan, South Korea, India, who said, "Oh, we have to, we have to import Iranian oil, or else our our economies will crater." And we we actually invited over a senior delegation from Saudi Aramco, and there's a reason there's an AM in Aramco that stands for America. Uh, and we, uh, you know, we worked with them very, very closely over a couple of days to figure out how much, you know, we each could produce with various incentives to make sure we could satisfy the legitimate energy needs of everyone, including China. And the Chinese actually thanked us, you know, they weren't happy about it because it was more expensive. Uh, than the Iranian, but they, they, they did respect the fact that we were not going to take an action like this and leave them high and dry. We would actually make sure there was supply should they wish to buy it.
0: They were taken care of. Yeah.
1: So this is, I think, very, and, and the point of that was for the president, for President Trump was to get the point where you could actually get a good deal out of the Iranians because they would be under such enormous pressure. I think he sees the same situation here with Putin.
0: I think you're right. Yeah, it's it's amazing. And you know, the the strategic thought process that went into that discussion with China under the Trump years versus the one where we're canceling a subcontract and we don't even tell our allies that they're going to be affected by it. This isn't diplomatic rocket science. Some of this is just common sense. Hey, we're going to do something. We should tell our allies what we're doing. It seems like the basics of governance are missing on the foreign policy front. And it is sort of mind boggling. So at this moment right now, if you were advising the president, what would you tell him to do to try to get the Ukraine-Russia situation to a point where we get to negotiated settlement, get Ukraine what it deserves, its country back, but also take the more serious possibilities of nuclear war and everything's off the table.
1: Well, that's, that's where you have to be extremely cautious. You know, we have something like you know, the uh, Ukrainian president requesting fast-track NATO membership. You know, for me, I totally understand why Zelensky did it. Uh, and you know, I'm not saying he was wrong to make the request, but I think NATO would be wrong to accede to it until Ukraine actually fulfills the requirements for membership. That that was what gives the lie to Putin's whole rationale for this war. Oh my gosh, Ukraine's going into NATO. Nobody thought that you know, this time last year, because while they were interested, there are certain things you have to do. There's a process you have to go through. And if you are a very well-developed you know, modernized nation like Finland or Sweden, it can go pretty fast. But you know, Ukraine has a lot of things they need to do. So I think we should commit to helping them with that process. Uh, but the process has to be gone through. And I mean, I think that's also one way you could take a little bit of the pressure off of off of Putin. I do think we though that President Trump was correct that we do need maximum pressure on him. We need to implement secondary sanctions on the energy sector, uh, we need to make sure China knows that as long as they're continuing to basically bankroll this effort, you know, that we consider them complicit in it as much as possible. And, you know, if the Ukrainians really can win this thing and take their territory back, I think we should be assisting them.
0: Yeah, that's clearly, that's clearly an objective. And it, that seems to be one of the places where we've had some success. It does seem like we're helping them with some strategic military moves and equipment and targeting. And then, you know, they do the work, but that, that's probably the one place where the Biden administration could take a little bit of credit to the military as we always do. Our, our great men and women step up to the plate and they do great work. Um, do you see a, does, does, uh, Putin face a, sort of a roman senate scenario which is it seems to me his standing in this country is declining every day that they have another loss another route another false promise broken uh, is it possible that regime change occurs in russia
1: well certainly anything is, is possible and the russian people have shown themselves historically willing to make dramatic changes in their government at times uh, you know i'm always cautious about that because there's always a worse monster
0: that's a good point <laughs> and there's some bad people in Russia. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I, I, I'm certainly not a Putin fan. I don't want to come across as that at all. Uh, and I would want to work, you know, as much as possible to support the Russian people if they wanted to make a change that you know was beneficial to our relationship. I'm, I'm very supportive of that. But, you know, the you know, chaos in Russia, you know, on the eastern front of Europe is, is to be a big challenge, and you know, if American leadership is not up to that, it it could be a very frightening time. Now that said, I saw a report today that Russian state media has been instructed to start with reporting some of the failures of the war because their propaganda was starting to take on like a Baghdad Bob kind of you know uh, sort of hysteria, and people were starting to mock it. And so I think they. Uh, they They felt they they had to start at least you know admitting some drawbacks, and I don't know you know at what what point that becomes a chink in Putin's armor, uh but it's certainly possible
0: yeah, that's a great point, and it is that that subtle change though usually means something much bigger is beneath the surface that's a I hadn't noticed that that's a really important development real quick. I want to ask about Iran. It looks like this citizenry movement, this real Groundswell against the regime is maybe as big or getting as big as the 2009 Green Revolution. It doesn't seem like the Biden administration has capitalized on the opportunity of standing with these extraordinary women and students and workers. A missed opportunity?
1: Oh, it's, it's, it, it breaks your heart. The Iranians are being so incredibly brave. And this really puts the lie to the regime narrative that the Iranians are apathetic, that they don't want chaos, they don't want to become Syria. That's natural enough. Nobody does. But, you know, clearly the Iranians are willing, like the U- Ukrainians, to risk everything to try to effect change. And and, and what's different about this, I mean, A, there's the, the face of it, the, the 22-year-old woman, Maza Amini, who you know, was murdered, brutally beaten to death by the morality police. You know, even if you're a hardliner, you, you don't think the 22-year-old should have been beaten to death. Uh, and so that's that's different this time, and you know the the efforts or the, the effort the movement seems much more focused on end the regime, not reform the regime, not you know try to come to an accommodation, but end it like this this is over uh, Two thousand and nine was about process, you know about a, a bad election this is this is make it go away so I think the I mean, the administration's so blinded by the nuclear deal you know, they they're tying themselves cells and knots over this. I would see it as another generational opportunity to possibly, you know, change a, a savagely un American regime, but again, to do it in a way that we get something better, not something worse.
0: Yeah, that's important, right? If we're gonna go through that transition, let's get that's where the Americans could be such a vital role. If they signal that they were willing to be part of this, we could then have a say in who who came to power. And it seems like we're just missing such an extraordinary opportunity. Victoria, you do such amazing work. How do people follow all the good work you do at Heritage and on social media? You're really one of the most sage voices in all of the security space. How how do people follow what you're doing?
1: Thank you for that. That's very kind. Uh, I mean, a lot, most, I guess all of my stuff is on my Twitter feed at Victoria Coates, uh, and then also at heritage.org. i And, you know, I'm working through the Daily Signal as well, which is available through Heritage's site. So thank thank you for that.
0: Big fan of the Daily Signal and Rob and all the great team there. Last question, because this came in, someone was reading my book uh, not that long ago, um, Fallout, and in there we mentioned the A one two three agreement that the Obama administration, with Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden, right alongside of the president, did to bring a significant amount of of Russian uranium into the marketplace in the United States. I guess Energy Department estimates it about twenty percent now. Uh, in a moment of great, this came. This is actually a question from one of our readers. Um, in a moment where Putin may look to try to have some retribution to the United States for, for what's going on. Uh, are we in any danger of having that much reliance on Russian uh, uranium in our own market?
1: Oh, we've had, I mean, this, I mean, it's, it's analogous to the China situation where we have handed over uh, you know, the, uh, almost a monopoly on a major na- natural national security issue to the Russians or the Chinese. And you know we're seeing in Europe right now how that plays out, and the Russian willingness to starve the Europeans of energy uh, that they had, you know, pledged and contracted to provide. So, you know, it's going to be a scramble and a pickup game to figure out how we ensure our necessary supplies. Uh, but then a cautionary tale going forward to absolutely not do this again. We cannot pretend that, you know, these bad actors are going to act in good faith with the United States. They're not. Um, So I think that, you know, we both have to deal with the immediate issue, uh, but then also this will be a generational shift.
0: Yeah, that is such a great point. Uh, Big, big issues that we got to clean up. A lot of of mess we got to clean up in this foreign policy space. That's for sure. Victoria, it is always an honor to talk to you. Thank you for being so gracious with your time. And uh, I'm sure with a turbulent world, we're going to need to get you back on real soon again. But thanks again for the time today.
1: Thank you, John. Take care.
0: All right. You as well. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back after these messages.
1: Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital.
0: All right, folks. That wraps up an incredible Saturday edition. A big thank you to Victoria Coach for spending so much time graciously with us on a Saturday, nonetheless. God bless her. That was really great. Some, I think, some really important points to think about about the state of the world and how diminished we are in the eyes of the world with some of the things that have happened with President Joe Biden. We all want our president to succeed. Doesn't matter for Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal, independent, Martian, for God's sakes, we want our president to succeed. But the proof on the front stages. He's failing a lot, and there's a lot of credibility. I think Victoria Coates said it right. We're suffering generational, reputational foreign policy stature as a result of the, some of the uh, dropped balls on the watch of Joe Biden. So an important thing to keep in mind as we go to the weekend. Tomorrow, don't forget Lou Dobbs, Mike Huckabee, leading off the show on a Sunday morning. Now, that's a Sunday do you want to get. The Attorney General of Louisiana, Jeff Landry, going to be running for governor down there. A lot of excitement among Republicans, that they might capture the Louisiana in, governorship that's been in Democratic hands for a long time. Dr. Harvey Risch, the Yale epidemiologist who had COVID, right? When Dr. Fauci had it wrong. The head of the U.S. Oil and Gas Association, the president, Tim Stewart, good friend of mine, gonna talk about all those energy things like OPEC that happened. And then Jay Christian Adams, one of the real experts in the space on election integrity. He has some big lawsuits about voter rolls, including one in New York where they found 3 million voters on New York rolls have incomplete voter roll information that should make them uneligible to vote. We're going to talk about that with Jay Christian Adams. And then, we saved a big cleanup hit. If you start with Lou Dobbs and Mike Huckabee, how do you clean up a show like that? I'll tell you how you bring Charlie Kirk on. My good friend, Charlie Kirk from Turning Point USA. And of course, one of my colleagues on the Real America's Voice Network, he's joining us. That will be our cleanup guest on Sunday. Hey, hey, hey don't go away. That's quite a lineup for this Sunday morning. It's time to go spend some great time with family, friends, and loved ones. So go do that. We'll have you covered tomorrow with a great show. If you need a news fix, 24-7, we got you covered at Just the News. Dot com. Be sure to tune in tomorrow. Folks, everyone knows the next medical crisis is just around the corner, whether it comes in the form of a pandemic or something much more mundane like a tick bike.